0: Welcome to 2024 for the FMI Built-In Podcast. I'm Scott Winstead, FMI Consulting President. I'm really excited about what we have in store for 2024. Much like we did last year, we'll speak to a number of CEOs, both current and former, about their businesses, their perspectives, their philosophies, where they think the market may be headed, and what some of the success drivers have been inside their businesses. We'll also talk with our own internal experts about what they're seeing in the market, what they're seeing clients wrestle with and what some of the solutions are that they think folks should consider. I'm really excited about my conversation today with Alex Miller regarding our 2024 M&A overview. Alex touches on what we saw in 2023 across the broader M&A landscape and within the built environment, as well as what we believe will likely play out in 2024. Alex is a managing director with our FMI Capital Advisors Group. Alex, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me and happy new year. Always great to talk to you You as well. To start us off, I thought it'd be helpful to do a look back to look forward. And so just to kind of ground our conversation, I'm curious, what did you and your team see in 2023 from an M&A perspective?
1: 2023 was a down year in terms of total deal volume. I mean, I think deal activity and total volume was down roughly 20% compared to year over year it was the second year of falling deal activity after, you know, what was a pretty record breaking year in 2021. You know, a lot of that was driven by, you know, headwinds that existed in the market and and candidly some of which still exist today, right? There's kind of ongoing economic uncertainty, uncertainty, Certainly, a, a rising and increasing interest rate market, geopolitical tensions that exist, and and you know kind of increased antitrust regulation. I mean, all of those you kind of couple together and and really kind of put downward pressure on M and A activity, really in the first half and and really in the first quarter of of twenty three. The positive is is that you know every month as we kind of went along, activity picked up throughout the year, and and if you look at it kind of across the whole span and globally. It, 23 was really an average year of M&A activity. It's just when you compare it to 21 and 22, it was it was certainly a down year. Most of that decline came from private equity activity. The peak of M&A private equity accounted for probably, you know, around 40% of all deal activity again thinking across all sectors. But when you looked at what was happening in the interest rate market and a really tight financing market, you know, getting large private equity deals done was challenging last year. And so we saw you know pretty significant decrease in private equity activity. That's if you're looking across all sectors. If you want to take kind of a more narrow view and look at just the space where, where we focus on, the engineering construction market, I'd say that 23 was kind of a tale of two stories, right? On the positive side, engineering construction M&A activity has been steadily increasing every year over the past decade. And I think our sector was one of the more resilient in 23. Total deal activity was down 20%. We certainly didn't see that in our market. Not, not scientific here, but engineering construction activity as a percent of total deal activity has increased every year since 2019. If you look at kind of total deal activity across all sectors, 23 represented the highest percent that the accounted for. So again, all of that positive, and that we are seeing a lot of real strong macro trends that are driving MA activity. What I'd say is, is that we probably didn't see as much of it as we expected. Our deal activity, we believe at FMI, specifically in the engineering construction market, is, is going to have a, a long multi-year run here. But a lot of those headwinds that we mentioned before really kind of tampered some of that and held back what could have been a much stronger market. Kind of jumping ahead and probably your next question is, is we think that there is really pent-up demand that we're entering in 24 in terms of real m a activity that we didn't see last year that we think will will carry us into this year.
0: Now, you read my mind, Alex. I mean, that was going to be my next question as you kind of think about the future and at least the next 12 months, plus or minus, where do you think things are headed? What would you say are some of the trends or underlying themes driving the anticipated activity?
1: We don't like to be in the, um, in the forecasting business of M&A activity. We leave that to Jay and Brian and others within FMI, who I know you're going to talk to next month about, you know, where construction put in place is going to be, and they forecast for a living. You know, I'd, I'd say general consensus is, is that 24 should see more activity, again, across all sectors. But I would also say that the environment is kind of murky right now. So I, I think consensus is that we'll see more activity, but a lot of the issues that kind of held us back from activity last year are still present, right? Interest rates remain high. We still have kind of geopolitical issues that are taking place across the world. I think general consensus is, is that the economic outlook is we're going to land this and that, you know, we have kind of a positive economic outlook, but I think as Jay will probably tell you next month, many of our engineering construction clients are, it's going to be a mixed bag depending on which markets you focus on and what geographies you're in. And so, you know, I think all of that still exists, but we've got a couple of things that are really strong and, and I think will drive M&A activity. We talk a lot about the dry powder that exists within private equity firms last year was a down year for private equity activity. Given interest rates, given valuation gaps that existed between buyers and sellers, smaller corporate deals were easier to get done last year. But you know private equity firms are sitting on, I think, nearly $3 trillion of dry powder that needs to be invested. And, and almost more importantly than that, they're also sitting on a lot of assets that need to be sold, right? These firms make money by not only investing in, but selling assets. And so- at some point we're going to start seeing the you know the dam's break there. One of the things that really held us back last year from MA activity was the valuation expectations between buyers and sellers. You know we talked about the the activity that we saw in 21 and 22. given how much activity took place and given how cheap capital was really for the last decade, valuations got kind of set at, at pretty high expectations last year we saw obviously in a rising interest rate market a real disconnect between what sellers expected and and what buyers expected in terms of valuation and you know i think as compared to other cycles this was even more challenging right it it often will take us you know call it 6 9 12 months for those valuation gaps to shrink this one has taken us a little bit longer because it's really not driven by business performance we think that that is kind of settling in right i mean interest rates aren't coming down But I think they're better understood today. I think that buyers are pricing them in. I think sellers are pricing them into their expectations. And in our world, specifically in in the engineering construction market, many of our deals are not as heavily financed as in other sectors. And so, you know, a rising interest rate market, you know, while it's impactful in terms of valuation,
0: it's not as impactful or as dramatic as it is in, in other sectors of the economy. And that, that's helpful, Alex, just for context purposes. I'm curious, kind of taking the flip side to the question that you just spoke about. If we don't see m activity increase in 2024, what would you point to as the reasons why?
1: You know, I think the easiest reason why is that we're really not out of any of the issues that held us back last year. Like I said before, the Fed is still fighting inflation. Interest rates have not come down. We think they're going to get priced into expectations, but it's not like they're back to where they were a couple of years ago. We still have a very unstable geopolitical environment kind of across the globe. And, and and that is holding back what has kind of been a trend within the engineering construction world, which is you know some decreased cross-border transactions that is both regulatory driven as well as kind of geopolitically driven, that we're seeing less international interest, not significantly less, but certain pockets of the world are just unable to really participate in the same way that they were a decade ago. And the other thing I'd say is, I mean, don't forget that it's an election year. Historically, MA activity does take a little bit of a pause during election years just to kind of get that behind us. So, you know, I, I think if if we weren't going to see activity increase, which I think generally the consensus is, is that, you know, 24 will likely represent a, a more robust MA environment than 23. If we didn't see that take place, it's it's really going to be because of a lot of the issues that held us back in 23 that we're still working our way through in terms of a more broader economic situation. I think, specifically within the engineering construction world, it's going to be uncertainty
0: about the forecast of many of the companies that exist. That's a great point, Alex, and uh, to your point, I'm excited to talk to Jay next month. Um, I hear him talk frequently about just the geographic concentration of spend, which we see today, which has been a significant shift over the last 10 years. There's roughly 400 MSAs in the US, so call it 400 construction markets, and a third of every dollar gets spent on 12 markets. And then add another 10 markets, you know, roughly 50% of every dollar gets spent in 22 markets. So that's a lot of money going into very, very few number of geographies across the country. And then within those geographies, the sectors that make up those geographies, the market structure is shifting. For example, I mean, you look at healthcare. I mean, 10 years ago, the majority of healthcare spend was institutional hospital type structures that we're all familiar with. We certainly expect to see that flip in the next probably five to 10 years to where the MOBs or things like MOBs will flip and become more prominent portion of overall healthcare spending. So I think having said all that, it certainly has bearing on where firms decide to place their bets and where they're going to invest. You touched earlier on several larger macro trends that, that you've seen and are likely to see drive M&A activity for E&C in particular. I'm curious, what would you say are the most significant, what I would call investable themes that are shaping the market right now?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, we don't like to forecast activity. And so what I can tell you is, is I, I don't know what 24 is going to look like. I mean, generally, we feel like there is pent up demand and there's going to be significant M&A activity that takes place. What I can tell you is that over the long term, we are confident that there are kind of two buckets of of trends that I'll talk to, right? One being really broad industry demographic trends, the other really being sector investable thematic trends, like you mentioned, that are going to create a long term MA marketplace within the engineering construction industry. You know, I'm not smart enough to tell you what 24 is going to be. I can tell you the next decade is, is going to have a lot of activity because of these things, right? And so as I kind of walk through you know that first bucket of you know what I would kind of call demographic trends many of these are not necessarily specific just to the ENC industry but they're probably more concentrated within our world so you know the first being just the succession planning conversation that we've been having for what feels like 10 plus years we're in that second wave of baby boomers retiring you know you can say that takes place in all industries, but when you look at an industry like ours, that is entirely people dependent. The value of our companies that we work with are are the people that are in them, and when you kind of couple that with this wave of ownership transition, succession planning that's taking place, you know, this isn't just an M and A conversation. This is all about you know what we talked about last time I was on the podcast: ownership transition, ESOP, succession planning. But all of that does lead to more people considering what their liquidity and what their transfer options look like. You know, the second thing, you know, again, in terms of broad industry trends is is continued labor shortage and, and talent shortage that we see in the marketplace. And, and I don't want to, you know, that's one that we keep hitting, you know, over and over the head with. And, and I know we talk about a lot, but when you think about it, I mean, if you are a company that is looking to expand geographically in a market that is already tight in labor, it becomes pretty challenging to do so, right? I mean, we always joke that if I want to go open up an office in a new geography, who's available to hire that I would want to hire in today's market? And so, what a lot of our companies and a lot of our clients are saying is, is that hey, the way that we're going to do that is, is we're going to have to be acquisitive in doing that, right? You know, third kind of broad industry trend we point to is is the continued fragmentation of our industry. You know, our industry has always been fragmented. It is ninety nine point nine percent private. It is family and founder owned businesses you know many of these are you know lifestyle and family oriented businesses and in certain sectors we are seeing significant capital come into the marketplace under a consolidation strategy right we've been seeing it in the HVAC and the fire protection services market on the building side you know that is expanding now to touch on roofing waterproofing landscaping restoration you know these are all examples of what i would call non-discretionary services that primarily private equity but some strategic buyers are really looking at fragmented markets and trying to consolidate other examples of this are residential services pure consulting services which we're going to talk about a little bit later and then just you know the the continued consolidation within the trade construction and service space, you know, the mechanical, the electrical, the concrete, you know, we're now seeing that taking place more into building restoration, the exterior side of a building. All of these are areas that remain very fragmented, where we are seeing buyers come in and try to make consolidated larger platforms. And, and I think what's important to note here is that, you know, it's not just consolidation for consolidation's sake, the firms that are really winning are those that combine kind of that local presence with, you know, sophisticated technology, a larger platform, figuring out how do we get more bang for our buck with the size. And it leads to kind of the last kind of what I would call demographic or industry trend, which is really the overall sophistication of the engineering construction industry. We used to say a lot that in the construction industry, specifically, there are inefficiencies of scale. Every other industry, the larger I get, the higher my margin should go. And oftentimes in the construction space, the larger I get, the lower my margins are, right? They became inefficiencies of scale. In certain cases, that is changing. You know, Larger firms in our industry who used to not be acquisitive are now being more aggressive in their acquisition strategies. And I think that they recognize the need to grow. They recognize the need to add scale. We had a company that came to us about a month ago. And you know, the example that they gave was, our employees are demanding sophisticated training programs for us, right? Our employees and our clients are demanding sophisticated technology solutions for us. Think about what's taking place in the mechanical electrical side in terms of offsite construction and prefab and, and you know, modular construction. These are not cheap investments. And so from the people side to the client side, to the project delivery side, they require scale to do them correctly, And so many of our firms that historically said, hey, we just want to grow organically, recognize that growing organically is challenging. The need to get to a size and scale quickly is there to justify the cost of the technology, the manufacturing capacity, the training and development of people, whatever the spend is there, the scale is needed to justify that investment. And they're saying, look, we just need to grow quicker and faster and Acquisitions are probably the way that we're going to do it. And so as you kind of think about, as our industry shifts from being predominantly someone with a truck and a hammer going out and doing the work to a much more technologically delivered solution, it requires scale to
0: justify the investment. And so firms are really leaning into acquisitions as a way to get to that scale quickly. Just to add to that point, Alex, something we're seeing, some of the acquisitive firms, some of the buyers that are really winning are those that what their commitment is to the seller or the potential seller community is, hey, look, we want to invest in your business and help you solve your labor and talent challenges. And so we have this sophisticated training philosophy platform and machine, and we want to apply that to your business so that collectively we can be more successful together. Whereas that might be expensive uh, or those dollars are always competing for other places to go inside of one of those seller businesses, but if a buyer comes in, they can solve that problem with them and for them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, imagine a firm that invests a million dollars into a customized training and development and you know professional development program for their employees. It would have cost them that amount of money if they had X number of employees, 2X number of employees, or 3X number of employees going through that program. And so as we're thinking about what our employees demand of us, what our clients demand of us, many firms in our industry are saying, look, we're going to need more scale to justify this kind of investment. It's being demanded of us. So we better get bigger to be able to justify the spend that's going to take place.
0: Thanks, Alex. I appreciate you covering some of those broad macro trends. I'd love to shift now and, and get your perspective on what some of those most significant investable themes are.
1: Yeah, so this is where when we talked before about, you know, our confidence in a multi-year decade plus run of MA activity in the ENC industry, it's really because if you open the newspaper and, and you start kind of reading about some of the biggest themes that are taking place within specifically United States, but also globally what you're going to find is is that enc firms really sit at the forefront of a lot of these trends. And so, you know, a couple of those that and I'll touch on and there's more that we could, you know, spend a couple of hours really walking through. But if you think about aging infrastructure being the first, and we talk a lot about roads and highways and bridges, but it's also rail and it's water and it's utility systems and we are seeing significant a activity not just in the contractors that are going to be building those or the engineering firms that are designing those but also those that are providing maintenance and ongoing service and operations to some of these infrastructure services and so you know as we think about aging infrastructure being one, the next one to think about is the energy transition that's taken place right many of our engineering construction firms are at the forefront of designing and building, New renewable energy sources, but they're also the firms that are operating and maintaining and providing outsource services to those facilities. And as we've, you know, seen a lot of capital that has come into the construction of these sources, the operations and the maintenance of them. We're now seeing that capital flooding into EV charging infrastructure and battery storage. And all of these themes are places where engineering construction firms are, are really at the forefront of building out the infrastructure and the energy sources that are needed. Another one we talk a lot about is increased environmental regulations and energy efficiency standards. That really relates not only to the exterior, but also to the evolution of building design and construction. And We're thinking about how do we build buildings in a way that leads to the, the standards that are required going forward. And, and so we're seeing a lot of activity there. Another theme that we talk a lot about is the reshoring and the supply chain resiliency. We're seeing a ton of activity in and around advanced manufacturing construction, whether it's EV, whether it's batteries, whether it's semiconductor plants, whether it's biopharma, all of these areas where we're seeing a lot of activity. And and now we're seeing buyers really step into engineering, construction, modular solutions, a lot of different things that are going into building out this reshoring of, of our manufacturing capacity. And you know, I mean, the last one, and again, we could talk about a lot more of these, the last one I'll just touch on is, is just the overall digitization and electrification trends that we're seeing. What does you know increased digitization within the US need? Well, it needs a lot more data centers. What does data centers need? Well, they need a lot of people to service them, to provide solutions for them. And I think what's really important is, is how many of these themes converge on each other. We talked about the overall digitization and the need for data centers, and we talked about energy efficiency standards. Well, Those things aren't mutually exclusive. As we need more data centers, we're going to need more energy efficient data centers. And so those come together. We talked about energy transition and outdated infrastructure. What does new energy sources and outdated infrastructure mean? Well, it means that we're going to need to spend a lot in our transmission and distribution. Our transmission and distribution infrastructure was already outdated, was already in the need for hardening, was in the need for replacement, was in the need for upgrades. And now that we go to kind of a more decentralized Energy environment, we're going to need to invest more in the utility transmission and distribution side. Another one that I talk about a lot is population migration coupled with environmental regulations. So as you see, you know more and more people moving to a handful of metropolitan areas. Right, as we become a more urbanized population. The good sites are already taken, right? Where we're going to build things, if it was a good site, it's probably already been taken. Yeah, I was on the phone call with someone today and, and you know one of the top 10 metro areas that said, hey, we own a piece of property that we think is the last zonable piece of property in this metro area for this type of building that we're doing. And so what that means is, is that we're going to have to start building in worse conditions, whether those are destabilized conditions or whether those are environmentally unsafe conditions. And you couple that with increased environmental regulations, what that means is, is that environmental remediation firms are going to be in demand. It means that stabilization and geotechnical firms are going to be in demand, both from a consulting standpoint, but also the contractors who are doing that work. So when you think about that, I mean, what we're seeing is, is that there are these really big macro trends energy transition, aging infrastructure, increased environmental remediation regulations, reshoring, digitization, engineering construction firms are at the forefront of all of these. And as sophisticated capital, private equity, corporate buyers, whoever it may be, is looking for how do I invest capital to take advantage of these themes and these trends, they're waking up and saying, well, how about the engineering construction and operations and maintenance firms? who are building,
0: maintaining, designing, the infrastructures can be required to address these issues that we're going through. Given some of these macro trends, what specific subsectors are you seeing that are increasing MA activity at this point?
1: Yes, yeah, Scott, so look, given these specific trends, the quick answer is niche technical consulting and labor-oriented businesses. That are in these markets and solving these problems, right? Two of my colleagues, Russell Clark and Andrew Henderson, wrote a really good article about a year and a half ago about specialized consultancies and about how specialized consultancies are going to be the key to solving what they called 2030s complex challenges, right? It's a really great article, and it's not just applicable for consulting businesses, which is really kind of the theme of what they're writing about. It's also for labor-intensive businesses, right? The the O and M firms, the construction firms, the service firms on the back end point that they made in their article is that the world's going to look really different in 2030, but the road to get there is going to be messy. They they use a really good example of you know a highway with traditional gas cars, hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles, fully autonomous vehicles, all driving at the same time. We're not that far from that world. <laughs> and, and that is a great example of a messy environment that we live in. And it's not like we're just going to snap our fingers and be in a decarbonized, decentralized world in a digital world. It's going to take us time to get there, and it's going to be these kind of niche consulting and service firms that are going to drive our way of kind of juggling these competing systems and technologies. So big picture answer is going to be technically oriented firms, whether they be consulting or installation or maintenance focused, that are addressing those specific themes. You know, in addition to that, we're just seeing strong demand across the entire engineering construction landscape. Traditional engineering remains an area of of significant activity and increased activity with increasing private equity participation in that market. Interestingly, in the last 18 months, we've seen an increase in architecture, which had historically been an area where you didn't see a lot of MA activity. We're seeing more and more MA activity in the architecture side of the AE world. You move over to the construction side. We have always had a robust market within the mechanical, electrical, plumbing trades. That remains both for service as well as construction and installation. And then other areas that we like to point to are restoration and building services. We talked about that earlier and kind of that consolidation trend, but you know, those firms that are really in and around maintaining and servicing buildings, you know one of the areas where we're gonna see a lot of spend moving forward is in the civil side. And we are seeing what had been a pretty dormant M&A market on the civil side is waking back up again, both engineering and construction. And then the last one is environmental. We've kind of talked about that within the regulation piece, but both environmental consulting as well as environmental remediation. And and we talked about that both from within the building and outside the building. But anything that is kind of touching, environmental, water, those big themes that we're seeing a lot of activity today.
0: So just lastly on trends, I'd love for you to speak to just some of the emerging trends you think could likely result in M&A activity in the future.
1: I think a lot of the themes that we talked about before and and a lot that we haven't talked about are existing today and are going to exist for years to come. Those firms that are solving those macro trends are going to be in demand and drive activity for years to come. You know the first thing that comes to mind when you ask the question is offsite and modular solutions for construction. We're we're beginning to see some activity there really in and around I would call it the advanced manufacturing space, so biopharma, semiconductor, We're starting to see firms that provide a modular solution into those environments, starting to demand investment, starting to demand buyer interest. Data centers is another example where we're seeing a lot of activity. My view is that that's going to continue to expand. It starts with data centers. It's going to start with biopharma. Obviously, there are modular and off-site solutions that many of our clients have been investing in organically to service traditional commercial institutional industrial markets. But there are also firms that are doing that on their own that I think are going to create an MA market. You know, many of the themes that we talked about above, off-site and modular construction is going to be a solution for it. It's going to reduce energy spend. It's going to increase productivity potentially. It is going to create a more energy efficient environment, and it's going to allow us to get things that we need quickly, like vaccine production and manufacturing, into market a lot faster. And so, firms that are really solving for some of that offsite solutions, we haven't seen a ton of M and A activity there yet. But I think it's one thing that it's one area that really spans across a lot of those investable themes
0: that. We think we might see some, some M&A activity being driven in here in the future. And just to add on to that, I mean, it certainly is a, is a safer option from a put-in-place standpoint and, and project delivery standpoint versus, you know, in the, in the traditional field model. We've touched on it uh, throughout the conversation, but I think specifically I'd love to talk more about private equity and financial buyers. I mean, we're seeing on the consulting side more and more activity, uh, more than ever before, I'm curious what you're seeing with respect to private equity and financial buyers in the banking business and kind of how you think that will play out over the foreseeable future.
1: So we mentioned the $3 trillion of dry powder that that exists in the market today. You know, that that is uninvested money that private equity has committed to it that must be invested within a finite period of time. And so, you know, you couple that with those investable themes that we just talked about. And what that is resulting in is more private equity activity in the engineering construction space than we've ever seen before. We went back and looked at the percent of private equity deals, the private equity firms that bought engineering construction businesses as a percent of total engineering construction deal activity. We've looked at it every year since 2018. Every year since 2018, it has increased. So we are seeing significant step up year over year over year. And, And there's a couple of reasons for it, right? One is, Our market remains fragmented. It allows for one of the things that private equity firms like to do the most, which is buy and build strategies. We find a platform, we consolidate with, you know, we bring capital to bear to help you expand geographically, help you expand with more services. You know, we talked before about our strategic buyers who are looking to get to scale quicker. Outside capital helps them do that. The ability for someone else to come in and provide the capital to allow them to consolidate and grow and to get those efficiencies of scale, our market remains pretty fragmented. And so it's it's you know a ripe environment for private equity activity. You know, I, I don't think that I'm saying anything that many of our clients would think is surprising, but a lot of firms in our industry remain somewhat unsophisticated when compared to other industries. And so that's another area where private equity firms feel like they can come in, they can put Certain financial controls or technology in place, or the willingness really to start investing into things that maybe the family owned business or the founder owned business just wasn't willing to invest in because they didn't need to. But when you try to get to that next scale, right? I know on the consulting side, you guys talk a lot about, you know, you reach that inflection point where you've got to start investing again. And you've really got to take a step back to move forward. And sometimes it's really outside capital that will allow you to do that and, and to reach that level of sophistication that's needed to kind of get to 2x, 3x, 4x, the volume that you're doing today at, at good margin. And the other thing is is that you know private equity firms have seen a blueprint. We have seen successful investments, successful exits. In the ENC space now over the last 10 years, and, and once they kind of see a blue point for success, then there's a willingness to kind of lean in a little bit more. So long way of saying the themes that we talked about before, private equity firms are figuring out, hey, how do I invest in aging infrastructure? How do I invest in energy transition? How do I invest in increased environmental remediation or, or regulations? All of those trends we talked about before, again, just like our strategic buyers, private equity firms, are saying. You know, that's a place that I wanna deploy capital because the macro environment is gonna create a conducive marketplace
0: for growth and we wanna be investing in those companies. So Alex, this has been a great conversation. I wanna end on your advice that you would have for those that might be considering selling their business. You know, the first piece of advice, Scott, that we always say is
1: you need to understand what your options are. Have you done what you needed to do to prepare yourself for a potential exit in your business? What is the value of my business? Who are the likely buyers for my business? Is there a robust buyer market out there for my business, right? And if not, what other alternatives exist that I need to think about? And it kind of goes back to that ownership transfer conversation that we had with Nathan and and Matt a couple of months ago. So first and foremost, I always say, you know, look, have a conversation, to understand what your options are. I think just as important, especially in today's environment, is understand what your value proposition is. Understand... How do you fit within these thematic things that are taking place within the broader macro environment, and how do you participate there? We have plenty of firms that they grew up as traditional electrical contractors, but today what they're really doing is maintaining and facilitating the electrification trend that's taking place in the United States. We've got tons of firms that sit out there that think of themselves and are traditional civil construction firms. But what they're really doing is remediating environments or stabilizing environments that allow for population migration to take place, that allow for building construction to take place in a more stringent environmental regulatory environment, You know, really understanding where do you fit within your value proposition. And, And it's the reason why we spend all of our time in one industry, right? We want to be able to look at a company and say, how do you help serve and what are you doing to participate in? these thematic things that are taking place that a ton of capital and significant capital is flowing into the marketplace. And how can you be positioned to really take advantage of that capital that's flowing into the market?
0: Well, and just to double click on that, Alex, how do some of those themes impact valuation?
1: How you position yourself in a marketplace has a direct implication to valuation. Buyers are willing to lean into value when they feel like the company that they are acquiring has a strong growth trajectory that is behind it. I can pay more for an asset if I know that the business or I have confidence that the business is going to grow over the next several years. And these themes are where we're seeing capital, not just acquiring an M&A capital, where we're seeing owner capital pushing, right? Where we're seeing, you know, when Jay comes to talk to you about where is construction put in place going to happen, it's going to happen around these themes. And so buyers are absolutely willing to lean into value more when you are addressing some of these critical solutions. We've talked a lot about these big thematic themes. That same philosophy holds true if I'm just serving a good geographic market. I can pay more for an asset if the business is in a geography that's growing at 10% a year than I can if it's in a geography that's growing at 2% a year. Buyers are willing to really lean in when we're solving solutions and when we feel like there's a long-term growth trajectory to the business. And these macro trends are absolutely supporting long-term growth trajectories for a number of firms within our
0: space. Alex, that's probably a great place to leave it. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's always great to speak with you.
1: I appreciate it, Scott. And I uh, hope everybody has a great 24.
0: You too. Please join me next month for a conversation with Jay Bowman on our 2024 market overview. At the risk of dating myself, Jay is our own EF Hutton. When he talks about the market, people tend to listen. Jay is a senior partner in our strategy practice and the head of our market research function. You can see jay's fingerprints on many of our market overview and outlook publications as well as on video each quarter for updates on where we see the construction market heading jay will be here to talk about our soon to be released 2024 overall market overview and as always please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode